The national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new car. Like a legendary Camry, built for performance and available with all-wheel drive, you can count on your new Camry to get anywhere you need to go. And with available features like heated seats and a multimedia touchscreen, you can stay connected in comfort and style. Or check out an affordable and reliable Corolla with a trim for every lifestyle, from the hip and agile sedan to the sporty hatchback. There's a dependable Corolla built just for you. Plus, both Camrys and Corollas are available in hybrid models. So no matter your style, you can drive efficiently and affordably. And right now, your local Toyota dealer has more vehicles in stock and is making delivery on new vehicles almost every day. So visit your local Toyota dealer. And check out amazing national sales event deals on Camrys, Corollas, and more when you visit buyatoyota.com. Offers end April 1st. Toyota, let's go places. So for the retreat, we need to schedule the sound bath for whenever the pink moment is. Yes, which will be earlier than now in October. So I'll find out. I'll find out when that is. That's my job. Okay. Hi, and welcome to Happier in Hollywood, the podcast about how to be happier, healthier, saner, more creative, more successful, and more productive in a backbiting, superficial, chaotic, unpredictable, fundamentally insane world. I'm Sarah Fain, a TV writer and producer living in Ojai, right outside of LA, and with me is my high school friend and writing partner, Liz. That's me, Liz Craft. On this podcast, we talk about being writers in Hollywood, how we balance a career and friendship, and how to survive the war of attrition that is life in Los Angeles. Today, we're going to talk to veteran showrunner Jeff Melvoin about his new book, Running the Show, Television from the Inside. And we have a very useful Hollywood hack. Plus, I had a celebrity sighting. A good one. Yes. And finally, I'll recommend a TV show that's not new, but was new to me. But first, Sarah, we have an update. We want to remind everyone that we are hosting a Happier in Hollywood retreat at the Johnny Cash Ranch in Ojai on October 20th through 22nd, 2023. Yes, this is so exciting. Um, you can email us at happierinhollywood at gmail.com for more information. And of course, we will also post all of the information on our Facebook group. It should be there ready and waiting right now. So you can join the Facebook group if you want to take a look there. Yes. And Sarah, you have a personal update. I do. I feel like I need to come clean and confess that I did, in fact, despite my insistence that I was not going to, adopt a dog from the Ventura County Animal Shelter. And But I have to say, it was such a chain of events. Like, we were supposed to go out of town. We were just fostering for the weekend. We were supposed to go out of town. Then I got sick. We had to cancel the trip. The hurricane happened. So she just ended up being here longer than anticipated. And she's a sweet senior dog. She fits very easily with our other two dogs. So it, it happened. And I have to say, I'm glad we did. I've always wanted to adopt a senior dog. And she's the sweetest little cuddliest girl. She's only 14 pounds. Well, give us the deets. So her name is Gabby, right? Her name is Gabby. She's a poodle schnauzer mix. So somehow I've ended up with three dogs that don't shed, which is amazing. <laughs> nice. Yes. And of course, she makes me think, Liz, of Paddywhack, your dog, from when we yes. were in high school. 
Yes, we had a miniature schnauzer growing up. Of course, that was the first thing I thought as well. Well, Sarah, (laughs) I will meet her next time I'm in Ojai. Yes, you will love her. And now I'm officially on the hunt for other people, not for me. Okay, so noted. (laughs) Okay, Sarah, it's time for From the Treadmill Desk of, in which we discuss what's most pressing in our work psyches. And this week, we are talking to Jeff Melvoin about the job of showrunning. Emmy Award winner Jeff Melvoin has been a writer-producer on over a dozen dramatic series, serving as showrunner on eight of them. In all, he's helped produce over 470 hours of primetime television, most recently as an executive producer on season three of the BBC America series Killing Eve. Other exec producer credits include Designated Survivor, Army Wives, Alias, Early Edition, and Picket Fences. He was supervising producer on the CBS series Northern Exposure, for which he won an Emmy and two Golden Globes. Jeff has taught at USC, UCLA, Harvard, and the Sundance Institute. He's also the founder and chair of the Writers Guild of America's celebrated showrunner training program, now entering its 19th year. And of course, we're very proud to say that we took part in the second year of that program, and we've been back as speakers, which is always an honor. And Jeff's new book, Running the Show, Television from the Inside, is essential reading for anyone who aspires to be a showrunner. Welcome, Jeff. Welcome. Thank you. Great to be here. Well, everyone always says there's no manual for running a show, but you have written one. You really break down the nitty-gritty of the writing and running of TV shows in a straightforward, understandable way. So we thank you for that. Yes. (laughs) And we want to start with what made you want to write this book? Well, one answer is too many cups of coffee over the last 10 years with people who want want to know exactly what we're just talking about. Um, But seriously, uh, you know, the impulse that led me to uh, create the uh, showrunner training program with John Wells and Yvette Lee Bowser and Carol Kirshner and a host of other people was that going back 20 years, we could see that the business was changing and that the apprenticeship system that I had come up under, the old broadcast system, was, if not disappearing, was being seriously eroded. And this was well before House of Cards dropped in 2013. You could see that it was happening for any number of different reasons, which I I go into a little bit in the book. But that was the impulse behind the showrunner training program was to give promising people like the two of you uh, a chance to be exposed to some of the best and brightest minds in the business and and get a look at uh, how you might be able to, uh, to, to make your way or at least make it a little bit easier. And since then, what's always been on my mind is trying to make this information as widely available as possible because it was uh, it was never the intent to make it exclusive. The master class approach, the selective approach of the show and her training program was in order to inspire peer-to-peer uh, connections and, and make the class very responsive to the instructors. But it was always frustrating to me that we couldn't get more of it out there. So that really is as simple as it gets. I, I wanted to put it down in a form that Anybody with an interest could 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 read it and uh, and hopefully get something from it. So, Jeff, I literally laughed out loud when I read one of your six rules for being a television writer, which is have an unhappy childhood. Um, 
I, I say I had a complicated childhood. Liz had a wonderful childhood, but she's also like a very intense student of human nature, which I think makes a big difference. But why did you say it's important to have an unhappy childhood for writers? It was so funny. <laughs> well, I, I should first put it in context. You know, writing up six rules, people always like to go, to go towards lists. And I thought, okay, here's here's my stab, which is uh, only slightly tongue-in-cheek about what's important about becoming a TV writer. Um, it, it just seems that... Uh, for many of us, uh, a desire to prove ourselves to the world to uh, uh, somehow compensate for what we felt we might not have gotten in our formative years or prove that we were right all along, <laughs> you know, th- those those <laughs> drive a lot of people. I mean, not many people go into writing of any form because they're necessarily well-adjusted, happy people. Um, not mm-hmm. that you have to be miserable. But um, as, as a number of people have commented, writing of any form is, is, is a form of protest. And so... Um, when you have things that you want to rail against, any sense of injustice, personal injury, or uh, a greater issues, those are, that's great fuel um, to drive you to be a writer. And we, we all know that, to, especially in television and especially in today's market, that to be a writer takes a toughness and a resilience and a resolve um, that requires a great deal of fuel. So as, as I say in the, in the book, and as you mentioned, you know, with Liz's own situation, you don't have to be an unhappy soul to become a writer. You, to, be a, to, to be a lover of, of human uh, experience and to be a good observer, um, those, those are all uh, really important qualities. But I say we all have something to protest, uh, even if it's the fact that we're just born to die in a world that we'll never completely understand, you know? So that's, that to, that, that to me is, is, is uh, so that was behind it. And uh, it was meant to make you laugh a little bit, uh, but also to give encouragement to those people out there who uh, perhaps didn't have the most wonderful upbringing or experience. But, um, you know, in my case, it, it kind of uh, split the difference. I grew up in a wonderful suburb of, uh, of Chicago, Highland Park, Illinois, I had two loving parents, but I had a difficult relationship with my dad in the formative years. And as I say, it doesn't take mm. Dickensian um, uh, horrors to become uh, to, to feel that you have things that you want to uh, get off your chest. I mean, and a narcissistic <laughs> parent will do. And, uh, oh, and, yes. <laughs> and, and, and so I was speaking a little bit from experience, and and I loved my dad, and and we came to an understanding. But I will definitely say that relationship helped uh, uh, help drive me. Well. You know, being a showrunner, it's both creative and practical. Um, And you talk about that being a showrunner essentially boils down to quality scripts on time, which we absolutely agree with. Um, Why is that a lot harder than it sounds? Because it is (laughs) very hard. (laughs) Well, as we both came up in a a 22-episode environment and and then a 13-episode environment, that's a lot different than a six- or seven-episode environment. But certainly with the larger orders, the the multitasking that you have to do, running a writing staff, being in charge of all the creative departments, having final cut, um, doing all that at the same time – is just literally uh, overwhelming. And uh, as I say in the book, it really is an impossible job to do well 24-7. And you have to, just like being a goalkeeper in soccer or hockey, you have to be willing to let the last one that got by you, you got to forget about it. You got you to move on mm. and, and constantly be um, concentrating what's coming next. But, but it's so difficult because even l- let's take 
the supposed uh, mini room situation, which has a lot of issues, as we know. But suppose you only had eight scripts to do and had five people in the room to help you with it. Trying to harness five different souls and, and sensitivities and be a leader who's inspiring and yet at the same time has the authority to say, no, we're going to go left, we're not going to go right here, and get everybody behind you to buy into that. Um, that's a tough skill in itself. And uh, that, 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 uh, uh, assembling that team, inspiring that team, uh, knowing that you've got different sensibilities and personalities involved uh, and you want to get the best from all of them, that, 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 that's a very stimulating and tough job and it never gets, uh, it never gets automatic. Let's put it that way. I think it does get easier if you're working with people that you know and trust and have worked with for a while. But as you guys know, it, it can never be easy. It's not an easy job. You know, Yates wrote a poem called The Fascination of What's Difficult. And I think that that's, <laughs> that definitely describes yes. show running, you know. <laughs> yes, where he, I think he says it has to seem like it took no time at all. Yes. Like, that's the hard part. And it's also being on budget. It's quality scripts on time, on budget. And that's where another level of difficulty comes in, of course. Because if you're not on time, you're not on budget. You know that. And, yes, uh, right. You know, I mean, what, <laughs> what John Wells taught all of us is that, you know, if you get it done on time, you get to pay wholesale. If you uh, get it done close to being on time, you pay retail. And if you don't get it done on time, you are paying overtime. And sometimes no amount of money can make up for the lost time, you know. So we get a lot of notes as writers, as you know, and as showrunners. Jeff, what's your best advice for dealing with executive notes that you don't necessarily agree with? Number one, take a deep breath. You know, you don't have to react. Mm. You don't have to react in the moment. Uh, and um, as we all know, the great placeholder is let me think about that. And as, as I say in the book, those are the five most misused words in a, in a story conference. Mm. Because if you don't mean it, um, the executives on the other side, no matter what you think of them, they're not stupid. And they're going to see through that. And it's not going to engender a good relationship. Mm. If, if you don't like the note, you don't understand the note, you want to buy yourself some time to compose a response. And if you can't compose a decent response in the time you have on the line, say, let me think about that and get back to you. But often, as you guys both know, um, you also use that tactic, no, is looking for the note behind the note. So you say, interesting, you want to make the boy into a dog. What what leads you to suggest that? <laughs> you know, And then they begin to explain <laughs> what's behind their note. And you say, ah, so that's the thing. You don't think that the boy is sympathetic. Maybe we should work on that rather than making him into a four-footed creature, you know. Um, <laughs> yeah. it, uh, uh, but you're at least working with momentum. You're trying to find what the impulse is behind the note. And in the best sense... Um, an executive is your first audience and giving you an honest response that you should do well to listen to, just as if you were premiering something out of town. And uh, so even an even a inexperienced or somewhat inept executive who doesn't quite know how to frame a note correctly, maybe they can help you by providing that response. But you sometimes have to dig it out of them and, and figure out what it is that's not working for them. And then sometimes you just disagree and then you have to worry about that in your own way. But, you know, if, if you do say yes. you're going to buy time, and and you don't answer it within the session, uh, I do think you owe them a response to say, you know, we thought about it and I couldn't get it to work and here's why, but I appreciate it. And sometimes if you do get it to work, you say, look, this is what we came up with. I think that's really important because like any human exchange, uh, a good executive wants to be heard, not necessarily obeyed, but they want to be heard. And by giving them that respect um, and that courtesy, at least they know that you listen to them. You weren't just blowing them off, you know. 
Yeah, absolutely. The more we think of executives and and non-writing producers as partners, you know, and less as the us against them, the relationship always goes much more smoothly. Yes. Coming up, we're going to ask Jeff about delegating, but first this break. Celebrate and save at Ashley's anniversary sale. With Hot Buys, your choice of color starting at just $3.99. Ashley Sleep mattresses starting at $2.50. Plus, receive a free adjustable base with select mattress purchases. And shop top mattress brands like Stearns & Foster, Tempur-Pedic, Purple, and Beautyrest Black with 60-month special financing only at Ashley. Subject to credit approval. No minimum purchase required. Minimum monthly payment, down payment, tax, and delivery may be required. See store for details. Okay, we are back with Jeff Melvoin. Jeff, let's talk about delegating. Because as you were just saying, the showrunner job is so huge. There's just so many components to it. It's really hard for one or even, in our case, two people to do. How do you approach delegating? Because we find it difficult even between the two of us to delegate. We always say we're going to, and then we often just <laughs> both end up doing everything together. Right. How do you find that? It is tough. And and since I've always worked solo, I don't have a partner that I can look to to say that from show after show, I've, I've handled things exactly the same way. In my experience, the longest running experience I had was on Army Wives, as it turned out. And my line producer for the last five years of that, Barbara D'Alessandro, was the best in the business. She was my partner. And my writer-director, John uh, Kretschmer, I shouldn't say my writer-director, the writer-director on the show, um, I mean, the, the producer-director, not writer-director, John Kretschmer, um, they were my right hand and left hand. Every day, we were working at Raleigh Studios, and uh, you know, which is right opposite Paramount, and I live in Brentwood. So it would take me, depending on when I left, usually 35 to 40 minutes to get to work. I would leave the driveway, call Barbara, uh, because they're three hours ahead of us in Charleston, and uh, I'd be on the phone with her until we... I pulled into the lot at Raleigh, to, talking about the day's work, taking what was coming up. And John was often the same level of conversation. Another thing I did, which I only learned later uh, in, in my process, was that I was not brought up in a world that had room notes. We didn't have writer's assistants who took copious and very detailed room notes. I've come to appreciate mm. what that can do. But having been a former journalist, I believe, well, writers should take their own notes. You shouldn't have to have somebody like that. But I, I realized I was swimming against the current. So I, uh, oh. I, uh, when I found a really good writer's assistant, I had those notes sent to the director, producer, and to my line producer every day so that they could be mm. informed and they could troubleshoot things, which... It, it kind of anticipated delegation in certain ways. When it comes to the actual writing staff itself, I would deputize people depending on their skills and my comfort level with handling certain areas. For example, as my wife often reminds me, wardrobe is not my strong suit. And um, I'm, I'm always, especially when I'm watching something, if I'm watching something, I'm so intent on the story and on the acting that we'll watch something and my wife will say, what is she wearing? And I'll, I'll right. say, what? You know? <laughs> and, uh, uh, and so I know I have, a, I have a blind spot there. So I always find somebody who's going to help me with wardrobe and, and advise me on those sort of things. And then, and then, as I'm sure you guys do too, when you assign an episode, I delegate a lot of responsibility to the writer of that episode. They're going to sit in. But, but, but going back to your original departure point, it is hard to delegate. And we, we didn't get into this business as writers so that we could let somebody else carry the ball for us. But as you recognize, the the job is so overwhelming that um, 
you're not going to be allowed to do the things you do best and the things you want to do most if you don't delegate. You're going to create so much distraction for yourself. You can't concentrate. And as I've gotten older and more experienced, there's nothing more pleasurable than having partners you trust and can really rely on to do things that um, uh, that you may not be able to. I, I came across an expression not too long ago that I now use in the showrunner course, which is, you can do anything, but you can't do everything. And I thought there's a ah, lot. Of, there, there's a lot of wisdom in that. So even if you feel individually, you could play every instrument in the orchestra. You can't conduct a symphony <laughs> if you're standing <laughs> on the podium and and then running from music stand to music stand. You know, you have to <laughs> you have to get an orchestra there to play it for you. But I also think in today's environment that as we see a certain amount of convergence, which is another topic between the 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 model of showrunning that I grew up with, and I think you did too, where uh, the showrunner was the apex predator in terms of that system, um, that for a lot of reasons, there's more sharing of responsibility, more collaboration that's coming on. And, and the convergence between the old Hollywood uh, studio model of movie making, in which the director in the studio had complete say, and the writer was reduced to just kind of a minor role that could be replaced. We don't want to go back to that at all. But I think you'd agree that we are seeing some of that trend in the streaming, the top end, where they'll get a name director. And, and, you know, we can protest that, and we are in certain ways. Um, uh, that's behind uh, one of the big factors behind the strike is getting conditions that we feel are, are, are fair and amenable to uh, keeping writers uh, a viable and important part of the, uh, of the whole system. That being said, though, I have seen, like having worked on Killing Eve under the British system, um, in which the writer is pretty much the lead writer and not a showrunner. I don't favor that system, but it did make me see what the value of a non-writing producer could be and a genuine partner could be. And I think as we roll into the future uh, or stumble into the future or shoved into the future, um, um, collaboration, resilient, you know, resilience, flexibility, um, genuine collaboration is going to be more important for a showrunner. And it doesn't mean you have to surrender your vision, but it means you're going to have to find ways to influence things that may not just be strictly under your sole control. So it's uh, um, that, that's something that's going to be interesting to track as we, as we move forward. Absolutely. And Jeff, want to ask you, and I'm so curious about this, what do you think the biggest mistake first-time showrunners often make is? Well, I think we've already hinted at it. I, I think it is aggregating too much responsibility and putting too much pressure on yourself. And then the flip side of that mm. is, ta is taking too much credit and not sharing enough credit with other people. You know, I think that ah. it, it, it's a real sign of a rookie who feels that if they don't point out how much they had to do with every script, that the execs and others wouldn't be aware. When in fact, Everybody knows you're in charge of the show. Anything that comes out of that show reflects well on you if it's good. You don't have to say, well, I wrote that, you know, or, or well, yeah. yeah, his draft came in and it really needed a lot of work and I did that work. If you say that, people are going to say, what a jerk, you know, it's like, uh, <laughs> yeah. um, but, but, if you, but if you say, you know, Liz and Sarah knocked it out of the park, I'm so lucky to have them on staff. They are so talented. People not only go away appreciating what you've done, uh, Liz and Sarah, but they also say, wow, that's a really good leader she feels confident enough that she can share that that uh, praise and uh, and and really celebrate the people that is that are on her staff. Yeah, we always say take blame, share credit. 
I like that. I'll I'll steal that one. Yes. (laughs) Okay, good. (laughs) Jeff, a lot of our listeners are aspiring TV writers. What is your best piece of advice for a writer who's on staff for the first time? Hmm. Good question. I I put a few things there in the book, but I think if you're going to err, err on the side of listening and and, and not over-volunteering. I think there's a real, uh, even out of the best intent, there's a real uh, desire to put points on the board. Everybody else is doing layups and hitting from the outside, and you're thinking, but my stats, I, don't, I haven't hit anything yet. Um, it'll happen. But if you try too hard, um, just like in basketball, if you're taking too many shots and they're going off the rim, people are going to say, hey, you know, pass it off. Don't, <laughs> don't take so many shots. So I think you don't want to be so shy or reserved that you're not contributing, but, uh, but it does show a certain maturity to kind of see what's going on Pick your places at first and, and, then, and then contribute as you can. I would say that volunteering too much at the beginning out of genuine enthusiasm is forgivable and not a fatal error. <laughs> um, so that's one thing. Um, I'd also say that in terms of orientation, and I think you too would subscribe to this, we've been on a, we, we've all worked in different situations for different types of showrunners. And the thing that's important to understand is that your success as a staff writer is dependent on your ability to serve that showrunner as opposed to saying, my first job is to write things exactly the way I want to write them, the way I think things should go. No, actually, your job is to help suggest stories and do writing that your showrunner thinks is the right right way to go. And hopefully, those two aren't too far apart. And hopefully, to the degree that they are apart, once you see the difference between what the showrunner is doing and what you might have done, you think, oh, yeah, that's better. Just like learning skiing behind an expert instructor. Oh, I see. I can get down the mountain a little bit better if I do it that way. That won't always be the case. And when it's not the case, your job is to still serve as best you can. That is amazing advice. Um, again, Jeff's book is Running the Show, Television from the Inside. Jeff, between the showrunner training program and this book, nobody has done more than you to help writers succeed at an impossible job. So we thank you for that. We thank you for coming on. And we really do want everybody who ever wants to be a showrunner to get this book. It will help you. Thank you so much. I mean, I one of the pleasures for me is seeing people like you do so well. I mean, if I may say so, I feel sometimes like a proud uncle to look at people like you who come through the program and then gone on to such great success. So it's it's a thrill for me to be here. Thanks, Jeff. Thanks, Jeff. Coming up, we have a Hollywood hack that will help you collaborate. But first, this break. Let Tend Dental make your dream smile a reality. We offer a variety of top-rated treatments, including Invisalign aligners. And for a limited time, Tend is offering $750 off orthodontic treatments. Offer valid through January 31st, so don't wait. Visit hellotend.com slash sale. That's hellotend.com slash sale. And book your free consult today. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. 
All right, Liz, it's time for this week's Hollywood hack. It's one of my favorite things, Canva Teams. Yes. So, Sarah, we have advertised uh, Canva Teams on Happier with Gretchen Rubin. Gretchen uses it with her team, but you and I had never used it until recently when we were working, or I should say you were working because you really took the lead on this, um, on our material for our Happier in Hollywood retreat. Yes, and Canva is a website that allows you to make flyers, pamphlets, et cetera. They give you templates or you can design from scratch. I have used Canva for a lot of Violet School stuff. They have lots of great resources for educators and, I mean, everyone, any kind of business, retreats. If you need to make a cool-looking document, Canva's the place to go. Yeah, and so as we were working on it, we said you were working and sort of telling me what you were doing and then sending screenshots. I was texting you pictures. (laughs) Yes, and then we said, wait a second, why are we not using Canva Teams? And so like Final Draft Collab, where we can both look at the document or Google Docs with Canva Teams, you can both look at what's happening in real time, and it just makes a huge difference. So I, so we could just talk as you're typing and see how it looks and make little changes. And now I feel like, again, with our whole creative entrepreneurship that we've been discussing yes. on the podcast— there's going to be more and more need for things like this, for the ability to create material for whatever reason. And this is just a game changer. Absolutely. It's as much of a game changer for us, I would say, as Final Draft Collaborate. It makes such a difference when two people, even though they're not in the same place, can see what they're both working on. Yes. So absolutely check out Canva Teams. Liz, it's time for this week's Celebrity Sighting. Usually we try to alternate intros to our segments, but I have to do this one because it's so huge and exciting and I cannot wait to hear about it. Now, I have to say it's huge and exciting for you. It it, it would be like interesting, cool for me, but for you, it's like, I, I can't even believe this happened. It's so awesome. Yes. So everyone knows, as I discuss, I am an unapologetic fan of the Kardashians and This week, I was taking Jack to the pediatrician for his annual checkup before school started, and in the hallway, as we were leaving, we saw Khloe Kardashian with Tristan Thompson and their daughter, True Thompson. So it was like the whole family, minus their baby, and (laughs) it was very exciting Sarah, I'm proud to tell you, you know, I have a tendency to do the double slash triple take if I see someone. And it was just us in the hallway, so it would have been extremely obvious (laughs) had I, like, gone, I didn't do that. It took a moment to register who I was seeing. It's sort of like I saw them. I knew that I recognized them. So it took me a second to register who it was. Um, And once I did, I mean, I was just so excited. They look great. They looked very much like a nice family doing normal things. So anyway, that was a fun one. I thought I would have a big sighting on the picket line, but instead, this being LA, I had a big sighting at the pediatricians. 
Amazing. This is, of course, you know, I saw Diane Keaton at the pediatricians, actually at my OBGYN after Violet was born. Um, And I remember she was wearing like leopard skin pants. So of course I want to know what was Khloe Kardashian wearing? She was just wearing a very kind of normal athleisure outfit. All black, I believe. Nice. (laughs) Okay, Sarah, I have a TV recommendation this week. This is a show that's on Netflix. (laughs) Um, It's not new, but I just discovered it. (laughs) It is called Mindhunter. And it is, there are two seasons. It's based on a nonfiction book. And it's about FBI agents in the 1970s expanding criminal science by delving into the psychology of murder and getting uneasily close to all too real monsters. So it's basically the origin of profiling and understanding the mind of serial killers. It's super just interesting. I didn't want to watch it originally because I thought it was going to be really scary. And you know I have nightmares. Like, I couldn't watch Dexter because it gave me nightmares. But this, it's intellectual enough, I guess, removed enough that it didn't actually give me nightmares. (laughs) So for anybody who doesn't want to watch something too scary but finds that interesting, I really suggest Mindhunter. And interestingly, David Fincher directs a bunch of the episodes. Of course, he's a great director, so that makes it fun to watch as well. Yes, I can second this one. I watched the first season, and the performances are amazing. It's a really great show. Incredible. And that is it for this episode of Happier in Hollywood. Email us or send us a voice memo to happierinhollywood at gmail.com. Thanks for listening, and please follow us if you haven't already. And thank you to Jeff Melvoin for coming on today. Again, his book is Running the Show, Television from the Inside. Thank you to our executive producer, Chuck Reed, and everyone at Sankola Sound. You can follow them on Instagram at Sankola Sound. Thanks to everyone at Cadence 13. And as always, thank you to Gretchen Rubin. Happier in Hollywood is part of the Onward Project. Listen to the other Onward Project podcasts, Happier with Gretchen Rubin, Side Hustle School, and Everything Happens with Kate Bowler. Get in touch. I'm on Instagram and threads at S. Fain and Liz is at Liz Craft. We also have a Facebook group. Search for Happier in Hollywood on Facebook to join in on the conversation. Until next week, I'm Liz Craft. And I'm Sarah Fain. Thanks for joining us. It's a fun job. And we enjoy it. So, Liz, I have to ask about the black T-shirt you're wearing because it looks really good. (laughs) This is unique, Lo, Sarah. This was in our hunt for the perfect T-shirt. This was one of my um, finds, the unique Lo. I think it's, you know, like under $20, maybe $25. No, it definitely stood out for me. Washed and dry, you know. Oh, nice. Yeah, it definitely stood out for me. You, like, showed up on our little video feed for recording. I was like, ooh, that's a nice (laughs) T-shirt. Next level, baby. From the Onward Project.